Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of our podcast. Today is a little different because everyone's favorite co-host and favorite person on this podcast, Odin, will not be with us today. He is on a trip with his family, but I wanted to get this out there for all you listeners. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. Please, everyone, give a warm welcome to my father. My dad worked in civil law and worked for voting rights and even started a civil rights group at Google where he is currently a lawyer. He is very knowledgeable about racism and topics about race, and I thought because of all the recent police brutalities, the growing protests in Minnesota, he would be the perfect guy to have on. And before we get into it, I want to thank my guy Chami for inspiring me to start this podcast. Go listen to his podcast, Young Chom Speaks. It is a very good and inspirational podcast, and I highly recommend it. All right, without further ado, let's hop into it. I will start off by asking my dad some questions. And then he will ask me some questions. After that, we will discuss the police brutality in America while jumping into some concerning statistics about our country. Today's episode will be a little bit shorter, maybe about 10 to 15 minutes. So let's hop into it. My first question for my dad. What was your experience working as a voting rights lawyer? Uh, thanks, Charlie. First of all, it's great, great to be here on your podcast. It's a tough act to follow Odin, but I'll, I'll do my best to, uh, <laughs> to, to pinch it for him. Pinch it for him today. Uh, so Odin, if you're listening, I'm doing my best, pal. Uh, yeah, so, so my, my first job out of law school was to work for the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division. Uh, I was a voting rights lawyer, and I remember when I first got uh, the assignment to work in voting rights, I, my first reaction was, oh, I don't know if I'm going to want to do voting rights. I wanted to do criminal justice, or I wanted to do housing discrimination, or I wanted to do, you know, other things like that, criminal law, these kind of things. Uh, turned out it was the best, uh, best assignment I ever got. Uh, I was a voting rights lawyer for about three and a half years or so, and probably the best job uh, I ever had. I did cases for all over the country, uh, mainly in the South, uh, and just, just an amazing experience. You know, the, at, the, at the Justice Department, you know, you're just a baby lawyer. You just, you just, you know, you have no experience at all, but they just, they give you the case files and you, all of a sudden you find yourself in court. It's, uh, it was, it was, uh, just a great, great job. I was really lucky to get it. For sure. For sure. All right. That brings to me my next question. Obviously you worked in the South where there is a lot of racism today. What was one very brutal thing that you've seen that still sticks with you to this day? Yeah, that's a, you know, that, that's a hard one. I, I, I got to say, thankfully, I didn't see you know, too many things in the voting you know, sphere um, of, of the type of brutality that maybe you would see like in the 1960s, where literally you know, uh, black voters you know, trying to register to vote or cast a ballot you know, back then, you know, could have been brutally attacked or beaten simply for trying to, you know, stand in line and register to vote. Uh, there were, you know, many situations, again, this is going back decades ago, where, uh, you know, people that were, you know, trying to deny people the right to vote would bring uh, cameras uh, to polling places and take pictures uh, you know, of black voters attempting to cast a ballot as a way to intimidate them uh, and, you know, these kind of things. But in, in modern America, what we see today is we don't see that too much. You know, we don't see too much of the physical brutality uh, in voting rights that, that we saw decades ago. We see much more just very invidious, you know, sort of very just, you know, underhanded ways to deny 
deny deny the the right to vote. Um, and uh, you know, to, to me, they're 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 almost as sickening and almost as brutal uh, as what we saw, you know, back in the fifties and sixties. But um, you know, just just the idea that that there would be such uh, efforts to deny the most basic right, the most basic civil right, which is to cast about to participate in our democracy. Uh, it, to me, it's just always been just, uh, just frankly, just sickening and horrifying. Yeah, for sure. Totally understand that. All right. So obviously there's a lot of negative stuff that goes on. And I, obviously, as you just said, but have there ever, have you ever seen any really acts of human kindness? Like maybe someone standing up for like African-American who's being discriminated against or like a poll worker or something like that? You know, you know, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there have been, you know, all kinds of examples uh, of human kindness, all kinds of, you know, amazing sacrifices, uh, you know, that, 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 that folks have, have made, you know, to, you know, to, to help others, uh, you know, to help others vote. I mean, I'm trying to think of examples, you know, that I can think of. Uh, I mean, you know, it, this is going to sound, you know, maybe, you know, uh, uh, sim- you know, sort of simple, but to me, it, it's, it's actually quite powerful when you have, you know, poll workers, you know, literally these are, you know, oftentimes, you know, folks that are retirees or they're, you know, they're, 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 they're more, they're more senior in, in years and they volunteer to, to, to take the time to, you know, volunteer and to learn the rules and to, you know, do their best to, to help, you know, help individuals cast ballots. Uh, and, you know, you can see them, you know, helping voters, helping others. Uh, and so, you know, in some ways, even something as simple as that, you know, volunteering your time and, and doing it, what can be a very difficult job. Um, sometimes some of those folks, you know, uh, were, were some of the most important people in our democracy in some cases. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It totally makes sense. Okay, so obviously you worked, did some cases in the South, as you said, but you've moved to SF. What is there like a big difference between like, like that, like noticeably that you can just kind of tell, like walking down the street or like going to the store or something like that between SF? Yeah, I mean, there, look, there, there's there's no question. You know, I've lived in very um, progressive, politically liberal communities in in the last 20 years. You know, I've lived, you know, I've lived in Washington D.C. I've lived in, you know, Chicago. I've lived in, um, uh, obviously, you know, San Francisco. I've lived in New York City. You know, I've lived in very, very progressive, accepting, uh, politically liberal communities where the the entire body politic the ethos is to be very um, open and understanding of all races and creeds and religions and you know sexual persuasions you know you know whatnot and I think you know that's not always that's not always the case you know I'm I'm from a very politically conservative uh, congressional district you know in Missouri you know I've certainly I've I've you know I've lived uh, or I've you know I've worked in in you know areas in the South that are much more politically conservative and, and in my views can be less open uh, to, uh, to people that are different than them, whether it's different races, different religions, different ethnicities, different, you know, national origins. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you absolutely have, um, you absolutely have uh, that difference. You know, one thing though, let's, let's not, let's not pretend that the Bay area in San Francisco is perfect by any stretch. What you have 
you know, especially in San Francisco, is enormous uh, income income inequality, where you have very very wealthy, uh, you know, individuals, often white, uh, who are who are individuals of great wealth and great privilege, and that gap in income, that gap in in income and, and, and wealth inequality can can lead to, in some ways. Uh, maybe not quite as overt problems uh, as you might see in more politically conservative areas, but you know that that income uh, gap, that wealth gap, you know, is uh, can be very, uh, very dangerous and, and very concerning. So I don't I don't want to lose sight of that either in San Francisco. Yeah, I think that's important because I think a lot of people are like, oh, San Francisco, it's so liberal, like it's like really equal, like equality, but like it's really not, and it kind of takes me back. I went on a church trip and I visited the Glide Church and it was Martin Luther King Day. So they were giving him a more like a like a sermon about him. And one thing that the pastor saying that really struck with me was Martin Luther King was far from perfect. I mean, he had some issues like he obviously didn't treat he didn't treat women very well. Like he had his issues. And I think everyone kind of has their issues. Nobody history maybe makes these guys out to be perfect, but they're not. And I think that's kind of same with San Francisco. Like everyone's like, oh, it's just town of like freedom and even like the united states right it's this town of it's a country you know people immigrate here for like to start a new life but like really we have like a ton of issues too and i think nothing is really perfect and i think some people kind of fail to see that yeah no that's exactly right and and especially your point about martin luther king i mean you know every leader uh, no matter who it is you know great leaders presidents uh you know heads of state you know you know they're just humans. I mean, every, every, you know, everyone is human and everyone has their, everyone has their flaws and everyone has their, you know, their, their shortcomings. And, 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 uh, and yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, we have to remember that, but, you know, even, you, you know, even great, uh, you know, leaders in history, of course, they all have their, their shortcomings, but, you know, certainly not lose sight of, uh, of the, of their greatness uh, and what they're able to achieve, even just, at the end of the day, being human, you know, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, now we're going to move on to you asking me some questions. So I'm kind of interested what you're going to ask me here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think the first question that, that comes to my mind, and you know, I, I see a lot of things, you know, through your, you know, your passion for, for baseball and your passion for pitching and, you know, when I think about the topic of your podcast today, and I think about, you know, what's going on in the world right now, I mean, you know, global pandemic, you know, global economic collapse and crisis, you know, the, 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 you know, civ- this, this, this horrible civil unrest um, that has erupted again. And if you, you know, if you, if you look at the last five, seven, eight years you know, dating back to, you know, to Trayvon Martin and all the, you know, and all the things in between Ferguson, Missouri and all the, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, there's there is so much unrest uh, in the country right now and in the world right now. Um, it can be very overwhelming. And I guess maybe just to start with, and I'll tie this back to baseball in a second. But my first my first question is, you know, as a as a young man, as a teenager, you know, entering high school, with all of this, uh, essentially, you know, chaos in the world right now, how does that, how does that affect you? How does that, uh, you know, what is, how does that impact a young man like yourself? I mean, it's, it's tough, definitely, because I think, you know, from a young age, we all think the world is perfect and that everyone is like such a good person. 
and like all that and like we think everyone's perfect the world is like a big place but then i think and i think we're kind of shielded from the reality at a young age like you know like five six years old but then you know we kind of start realizing like later that like yo the world isn't perfect like not everyone is our best friend there are issues in the world and i think that was for me really hard to realize and i remember i was reading about this i mean it was tough for me you know reading about the like all this stuff. And I remember watching the video and I, I was like, yo, like that stuff actually happens. Like how? Because I live in SF. I've never witnessed that in my life. Obviously, you know, I'm white, so I don't have to deal with that problem. I have no idea what it's like, but just seeing it on video and seeing how that's what happens in our country, was just appalling and shocking to me. And I think that was almost like, that was the hardest part for me to understand is why, why would people do that to such an innocent man? It's just that was the hardest part for me is realizing the world isn't perfect. And a lot of people, even police officers, like I've met some good cops. I've met some bad cops. I used to think when I was a kid, police officers were heroes that saved the world. But there are some who aren't. And I don't know. I think that's just kind of hard to realize that the world isn't perfect and nothing is really as it seems. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And, and and I guess, you know, my next question again is I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, about athletics and how important you know uh, baseball is to you and pitching is to you and I was sort of wondering you know uh, I was uh, at your pitching lesson today with your with your coach he turned Mm -hmm. to me the middle in the middle of the lesson and he asked me about the civil unrest going on in the country and and he asked whether you know San Francisco was facing any civil unrest and sort of struck me that Mm -hmm. here we here we were sort of focused on your pitching and yet your coach has the you know has the 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 sort of you know, the, the wherewithal to ask about, you know, what's going on in the world. So I guess, I guess my question for you would be sort of how do you either tune out the, what's going on in the world or do you in some way use that on the mound or how, how does what's going on in the world affect you on the, on the, on the baseball diamond? I mean, I sometimes play angry. Like sometimes it helps me, like I'll get upset about things that have happened to me in my life and I'll play like super angry. And I think sometimes that helps me. Other times it helps. I just kind of drown it out for the 45 minutes. I'm just working and just focusing on baseball. And then I go back to the cold world. So it's almost like baseball is kind of like a safety blanket to me. And it's like, okay, I have these 45 minutes where all I need to worry about is baseball. I don't need to worry about the coronavirus. I don't need to worry about all the stuff going on in the country. I can just have these 45 minutes to focus on baseball. And I think that during this current time with the coronavirus and all that's going on is super helpful to me. And I think everyone needs that 45 minutes to an hour where they can just focus on something and not think of all the bad things in the world that are going on. I'm not saying turn a complete blind eye to it. I just think that we need time to just focus on something we love, do something we love for our own happiness. So that's kind of how I stay focused and interpret that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you touched on something else I wanted to ask you about. I mean, obviously you're a young man, uh, you know, and, and, and you, you know, you're, you're, you're young, you're a young man. You've had, you've had your privileges uh, in life, no question. Uh, but you've certainly had, uh, you know, much adversity, uh, especially in the last few years that you've had to go through. I'm not sure if, if you're comfortable talking about it on this podcast, but just generally, and if you are great, but if not, just t- talk us, talk us, talk to us about sort of how you deal with adversity 
on the mound and, and, and how you, you know, is it the same, is it the same thing or, or it's a refuge and, 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 or, you know, or do you, you know, do you sort of, you know, do you sort of bring any of that adversity with you on the baseball field? I mean, it's tough. Definitely. I mean, obviously I'm, just, I don't know. Not many people know this, but I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease last spring, which is a lifelong condition. And then uh, my friend passed away this summer. So it was tough for me, you know, dealing with both of those things in such a short amount of time. But I think on the baseball field, sometimes it helps to drown it out. But other times it helps to pitch angry. And, you know, you see some of the best players in the league, they pitch angry with a chip on their shoulder. And sometimes that's what helps me. Helps me like, like, why? Why does that happen to me? And I take all my frustration out. I look at the batter. I'm like, you are my worst enemy. I'm going to get you out. And that sometimes helps me to just pitch with all that anger inside of me. But you also have to find a balance because, okay, you have too much anger inside of you. You throw a fastball right down the middle, dude hits it over the fence. Or you're too pumped and you're overthrowing the ball. So I think for me it was just about finding the right mix of pitching with anger and all that frustration with my life, but also finding a way to control it and kind of dial it back and stay calm. Yeah, a way, a way to channel it almost and try to, you know, to, to, to pitch – smart and to pitch, you know, you know, yeah, like you said, you, you got the number three hitter who's, you know, you know, a great fastball hitter, you know, maybe you can't blow it by him, mean, no, no matter how much anger you have. So then you, you, you get, you throw, you throw yeah. the outside, yeah. outside change up and then yeah. he flails at it. Yeah. But like, I try to use that stuff for my advantage, not my disadvantage. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's great. That's great. Um, last, last question. If I if I could ask one more, yeah. um, I guess my question is, um, you know, p- pitching, you know, they describe it as one of the hardest uh, positions in all of sports. Uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, uh, I guess my question is what, what's your greatest fear and how do you overcome it as a pitcher? I guess, I think as a pitcher, you never want someone to hit the ball hard off of you. Because if you think of baseball, the best players hit 300. So at least me personally, I never want someone to hit the ball hard off of me because I'm like, oh, well, he's not even supposed to hit the ball hard off of me, but he did. And I think it's about eliminating all the fears you have, the fear of walking guys, the fear of getting hit hard, and just pitching with confidence. Like when you're on that mound, if you're not confident, it's going to show and you're going to get hit hard. But if you can walk up to that mound and be confident in yourself and in your ability to get these get everyone out, then you're going to be good. So I think for me, it was just about developing the right amount of confidence in myself and in my ability and realizing like, yo, I'm good at this. I can get these guys out. And I don't care if it's number nine here on a 13U team or Mike Trout walking to the plate. I have the mentality of I'm going to get this guy out. He's nothing to me. So I think that kind of well, helps me overcome that fear. Well, great. And if you can get Mike Trout out, I, d- I definitely want to be your agent. So yeah. just keep, keep, mm-hmm. keep, 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 keep that in mind. 5%, 5%. <laughs> all right. That's all that I got for questions right. for you, sir. All right. Well, now I kind of want to move back to a more serious subject, which is the George Floyd incident. For those of you who do not know, George Floyd was an African-American man who was supposedly committed a forgery. I don't, I think it was like a check or something. And he, I guess the cops were trying to arrest him. Maybe he was resisting. So the cops literally grabbed his hands, put him face down, and this one cop kneed on his neck. And he was screaming, let me go, let me go, I can't breathe. All the civilians were screaming at him to let him go. And he kept it on his neck, and eventually he died, which is super sad. But I just wanted to think, like, 
what what you think goes through the officer's head. Like, what makes him think, like, oh, this guy, like, I need to do this. Like, he obviously just kind of, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of at a loss. So I want to kind of know what you think goes through the officer's heads during, like, a situation like this. Yeah, I mean, I think where I'd want to start with my answer is, number one, you know, I am not a person of color. I'm not, uh, I'm not a black person. I'm not, African, I'm not an African-American. You know, I'm a white male who can, you know, walk down the street uh, and not, you know, have the same worries and same fears that a black, a black man does, right, or a black woman. Uh, so, so, you know, from from the you know from the black lives matter movement and sort of sort of african americans in this country or all over the world you know i could never know what goes through their heads uh number one number two i've never been a police officer before and and i and i could never try to imagine what it would be like you know to be a police officer to put yourself in harm's way every day to to you know to to go out there to walk a beat to not know whether you know the last time you you know kiss your wife and kids goodbye that could be the last time you see them because you know you put yourself literally in the line of fire uh you know you're 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 in a job where literally it's a life or death job you know i i go to work and i you know i'm i'm a i'm a lawyer at google and you know it is it is it is in no, not even remotely, you know, dangerous or life threatening. So, so it's very hard for me, you know, not being either black or a police officer to, uh, to, to know what, what goes through their heads. Uh, but also, you know, this, this, I forget the guy's last, begins with the C, the shop, I forget the, what, what the guy's, the, the yeah. police officer's mm-hmm. name is, uh, but he's a murderer. I mean, he 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 is he is a murderer. He 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 committed a crime, and of course, he's entitled to due process and entitled to a to a trial, you know, et cetera. But if he is found guilty, uh, he is a murderer. And not all uh, police officers, obviously, uh, are murderers. Um, obviously, not all police officers are racist. Obviously, not police officers all police officers uh, commit acts of brutality. But there is no question uh, that the criminal justice system uh, is racist. There's no question that the, you know, that there are a, let's just say a non-trivial number of police officers who are either racist uh, or who at least lack significant uh, racial uh, sensitivity training uh, because, you know, it is, it is not safe. Uh, especially for black males, it is not safe for them, and they do not feel safe, uh, you know, in, in the hands uh, of police officers. And that that is just a fact, you know, you know, and 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 so I don't know what goes through uh, their minds, uh, but I know that until uh, police officers more generally are held accountable, and police unions are held accountable uh, for for bad actors and for sort of training training their own uh we're i mean there's so many more aspects of this problem but that's that's a big one that needs to be addressed uh right away yeah for sure i mean i i totally agree probably should have added the first part in obviously i have no idea what it's like i have no idea what it's like to to you know be at risk for my life when i'm pulled over by a police officer like i said earlier i used to think oh the cops are the good guys but no, that's not that's not always the case. I mean, 
I don't know. But I think sometimes, and I'm not trying to like put any speculation on anything, but I think what I think the biggest problem is personally is cops act first and then think later. I think subconsciously in the back of their minds, they're like, oh, African-American man, I think he's dangerous. It's like he could do something to me. And I think that personally, I think that's the biggest problem. But like you said, we really just have no way of knowing because obviously like we've never been in anyone's shoes and I don't want to judge anyone, you know, until I've walked in their shoes. I read this book to kill a mockingbird. I'm trying to find the exact quote here. Um, It's like, never judge a man until you've gotten into his skin and walked around it or something like that. And I think that's so true because do I think this, look, obviously the police officer who killed George Floyd was a murderer. But I mean, I think we also have to kind of think like, do I think he's a horrible person? I mean, no, he made a mistake. I don't know if he's had other incidents in the past, but I think we kind of have to look through their skin and I think that's going to help solve the problem. I don't think, like, personally, I don't think raiding a target is going to help solve this problem. But that's just my opinion, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a, the, the question about looting and, 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 and rioters is a, is, a, is a very complicated question. But, but yeah. getting back to the, to the George Floyd incident for a second, I mean, if it were a situation where, they, let's just say there was a police officer and he was going into a dark building and, you know, it, it was, uh, and, and let's say, you know, it was at night, uh, and let's say it was dark, and let's say, you know, uh, let's say there were gunshots, um, let's say it was sort of chaotic, uh, and let's say, you know, he snapped, or let's say he made a bad decision, and let's say someone, you know, someone was killed, you know, like, in a situation where there was at least you know, some element of life-threatening danger. But in this situation with George Floyd, and it was in situations very much like it that that happened all the time, all over the country, where this there's one guy, you know, and there's multiple police officers there. And maybe the guy is in handcuffs and maybe he's on the ground. He is not posing in any way, shape or form any threat to this police officer's life, you know, you, you know, and, and even if he was mildly resisting, which by the way, he stopped. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the guy had, the guy had yeah. a knee on his neck for yeah, nine I minutes. Mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, but like, you know, in situations where there just appears to be no risk to the, to the, to, to the life or limb of, of a police officer. And it almost seems like they're just, you know, you know, I I don't even know, I don't even know what word to use, but uh, you know, this is just not a situation where um, I'll put it this way, even though we've never been a police officer, we've never been in the police officer's shoes. We can know that, 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 that was completely unacceptable, horrific behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously. And, 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 And I would hope other police officers would, you know, would, would agree with that. Yeah, because I think especially it was for nine minutes. Like he could have moved his knee any second out of those nine minutes, but he just didn't. And I think this is almost worse than a shooting because a shooting is just one act, one pulling the trigger. But this dude, he had his knee on his neck for nine minutes. George Floyd was literally yelling, I can't breathe. 
and all the civilians were saying, get your knee off his neck. So I don't, I, I just, I have no idea like what goes yeah. through his head at that, at that point. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all right. All right. Moving on. I came across an interesting statistic and that is that an African-American man is two and a half times more likely than a white man to be shot by the police, even if they do a less severe crime, such as George Floyd did forgery or was accused of it. And this number has gone up a lot in recent years. I think it was at like 1.5 a couple years ago. And it's just going up so much now. So I'm kind of wondering, like, like, we all kind of think like, oh, we're like past this, like the slavery and all that. But there's still so much like inequality and racial injustice in America. And I was kind of wondering what you think about that and like, how, I don't know. No, I mean, look, it's, it's uh, you know, certainly anyone that that looks at our history in America, you know, the, you know, hundreds of years of slavery uh, followed by, you know, even after emancipation, you know, you had Jim Crow laws and you had the, 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 the horrible brutality uh, of Jim Crow in the South and, the, and all the way through the civil rights movement. Uh, of the 1960s, but even after, you know, all of the, you know, the, the, the federal laws and the, the, you know, the, 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 the victories in, in courts, you know, starting at Brown versus board of education all the way through, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, uh, you know, various court decisions through the 1970s, uh, you know, and, and even if you then fast forward all the way to 2008 with the election of the first, uh, the first black president, uh, we, we just, you know, we, 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 we still just have so much work to do in this country. Yeah. Uh, and the, the problem to me can seem very overwhelming and can seem, uh, just almost in some ways unsolvable, but, um, it, it's, it's very hard politically for leaders, I think, to take on the race issue. Uh, very complicated to, to talk about why I think it was so hard for for Barack Obama uh, to 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 truly take on the racial issue. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's just you know it's just uh, you know it, it's it's been described as the you know the stain you know the stain on America uh, because we just have not been able to adequately address you know in a very direct way in a very healthy way uh the stain of racism in in america and um you know and, and i think you know we talked about the looting uh, earlier you know of course we cannot condone in any way looting and violence and, and what we're seeing we cannot condone it but we certainly can understand why we certainly can understand where it's coming from you know you know the just decades and decades of frustration uh, and, and, and the brutality against the black community. And, you know, that just boils over, you know, you go back to the, you know, the riots of the, the race riots of the sixties, you know, in Watts and, uh, you know, in Detroit and, you know, and just, we can kind of just, you know, or, or in 1992, you know, with, uh, you know, in Los Angeles and elsewhere, I mean, we just, the systemic racism that we see in, in America, you know, it, it's going to boil over. And, and these are, these are the times when, when it, when it does. And it's just, it's just so hard to watch. It's just so painful. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, dad, for being on. I really like this. I mean, we went 
a little bit long, but I thought you did a great job. Thank you for being on. Thanks. Thank it was you. An for... honor to be here. I think now I'm the third favorite on the show, but it's okay. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's listened, and we'll see you guys next.